Um, since uh, Jared is preparing to go to Ecuador this week, uh, he asked if I would fill in for him so that he could work on preparing that this week and uh, not have to do a sermon too. So uh, we're looking at, as we just heard, John 15. But before we get, uh, get into the text, let's say a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we rejoice as we come together this morning. We worship you. We praise you for you are holy, you're mighty. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the words of Jesus recorded for us so that we can understand what you require of us, so that we can live holier lives, so that we can better glorify you. Pray this morning that, um, that I will rightly divide your word, that people who are here will hear what you have for them to hear, um, that truth will be spoken, truth will be heard, and hopefully lives will be changed through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 15, um, and we're in what is basically considered the second half of Jesus' farewell discourse. Um, it started in 13, and it's kind of, this is the second half of it, leading up to what in chapter 17 we'll have uh, the high priestly prayer. Um, these words were most likely, from best we can tell, spoken at the Lord's Supper, the night that he's having Passover with his disciples. Um, he says these things. So we also see, like, think about what we think of as a person's last words. A person's last words are usually considered, like, this is what they save to the end. This is what's really important. So when we look at these, we recognize that this is the thing that Jesus is choosing to tell his closest friends and followers right before he's killed. So it's, it's really vital that we understand this. All right, before we get into this text, I like to kind of give you an outline of the core ideas that we're going to be seeing so you can kind of watch, watch for and see as we move through. So first, uh, true believers will abide in Christ. He sustains, nourishes, and empowers them. Number two, abiding in Christ will necessarily produce good fruit in a believer. It will produce effectual prayer, fullness of joy, and love for one another. And third, uh, those who abide in Christ are his friends, and they joyfully obey and honor him as they are making disciples, loving one another, and glorifying the Father. So, with that in your minds, let's look at verse 1, John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Okay, this is the last of the seven I am statements that are recorded in John's gospel. Some people say there are eight, but most agree that there are seven. Um, and we notice that just like with all those other I am's, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just like those, he starts off with that declarative I am. And this is obviously a link back to Exodus where God calls himself I am. Um, and this is nothing short um, than a claim to deity. Jesus is claiming to be God. Um, now we move on and we think, well, what does this mean by true vine? The disciples probably would have better understood this than we do just at first glance. Um, but in order for us to kind of get the symbolism here, we need to look back to the Old Testament. Uh, so if you'll turn with me to Psalm 80, and we'll start in verse 7. Psalm 80, verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. 
But why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand has planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire, they've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Okay, so what is the vine imagery? The vine analogy is first used with Israel. Unfortunately, most of the time when we see this vine imagery, um, it's pointing to Israel's failure to remain the choice vine that God planted them to be. Um, In Isaiah 5, for example, um, it says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So the failure to produce good fruit was indicative of the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, and is indicative of us as humans as a whole. On our own, we don't produce good fruit. So by claiming to be the true vine, Jesus is claiming to be the true Israel. Um, He is the fulfillment of that picture in the Old Testament. The vine which produces the best fruit by producing fruit through its branches. Um, notice also that Jesus distinguishes himself from the Father in this verse. Um, so he, he has the role of being the vine which produces fruit, but the Father has the role of tending to the branches. Um, he's working to increase the fruit production. Um, and this helps us understand the Trinity too. So if we think about the Father and the Son are both, part of, are both persons of God, But since they are different persons of God, they have different roles, different jobs, different things that they do. And then let's move on to verse 2. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. Now, okay, we have to note that there are two pieces of this pruning. First, you remove dead branches. And second, you trim the live ones. Now, some interpret that removal of non-fruit-bearing branches as pointing to Christians losing their salvation. And um, this idea contradicts the core message of the gospel. Um, Eternal life can't be taken away. We just saw this in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so a better interpretation for this would be that um, many may claim to be believers, They claim to be branches. They claim to be abiding in the vine, but their lack of fruit reveals that they are counterfeit. That shows that they're not really abiding in the vine. And the Father removes the branches, but in reality, they were never actually in the vine in the first place because they would have produced fruit if they had been. That makes sense? In contrast to these fruitless branches, the branches which do bear fruit aren't cut off but they are pruned. Now, I don't know much about gardening. I may have to ask Andy or Wendy to help me out here, but uh, the idea of pruning is you cut off the buds that aren't doing anything so that new ones can come in that will do something. Is that basically right? Okay, so sometimes that pruning for us, when God cuts things off of us, it's painful. Um, He trims off parts that we're kind of fond of sometimes. Um, He puts us through experiences that are difficult sometimes. Um, But this pruning, the whole goal of it, is our sanctification. That's what he's doing, is he's making us more like the vine, okay? 
as we abide in the vine more, we will produce more fruit inevitably. So when buds which are unproductive and wasteful of resources get cut off, that makes room for new buds to grow which can be productive. Let's move on to verse 3. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Here Jesus is saying, the faith of disciples in the words that he has spoken has justified them. Justified by faith, just like we are. The word here, this is kind of interesting. The word for clean uh, in this Greek, in the Greek passage here, um, is actually really related to the word for prune. So when you prune something, it's, it's related to cleaning it. Um, so the correlation between these two verses would have been a lot clearer if we were seeing this in the Greek. Um, but the idea here, if you can kind of think through that, is that the disciples are freshly pruned because of their belief that Jesus is the Christ, if that makes sense. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, this is where it really starts getting good, right? You notice that the power of this metaphor is like popping now. Um, We, the branches, receive sustenance. We receive life and beauty um, and strength because we are in the true vine. And since the power of the vine is abiding in us, we are the means through which the vine chooses to produce his fruit. He didn't have to have us. Jesus could produce plenty of fruit on his own. He did produce plenty of fruit on his own. But he chooses in his perfect will to use us to produce fruit. So now we kind of have to pause here. I was talking to Catherine about this and she said, um, what does it mean to abide? When we say that, and like we've been using this phrase, this term, and we just kind of take for granted that everybody understands what abiding is. Let's think about that. Abiding. Abiding in Christ. This is, has the idea of like living in, um, resting in, finding comfort in him. Really to abide in Christ is to live in faith. Um, we see Paul use a similar phrase to this close to a hundred times when he, he uses that term in Christ, in Christ. But the picture here is not just us in him but it's a mutual indwelling. We abide in Christ with trust and reliance and rest, and he abides in us, giving us life and power and righteousness. There's both sides. We also see that we are unable to produce good fruit unless we abide in Christ. And that's because no branch has life on its own. I mean, if you picked up a branch off the ground, you wouldn't expect it to produce fruit. It's not connected to the vine. It has no source of life. Um, And so because of this, we think um, non-believers sometimes may have the appearance of good works, but it's not truly spiritual fruit. Um, Paul tells us in Romans 14 that whatever is from not from faith is actually sin. And um, St. Augustine once said, even the virtues of the unbelievers are sin. So we can't, we can't just look at the good works that people may be doing and assume that they're in the vine. Truly good works spring from faith. We might also think of Paul's listing of the fruit of the Spirit when we talk about what this fruit looks like. He says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits that we produce when we abide in the vine. Now, we see also that this is like a two-sided relationship. Um, We are held responsible for abiding in the vine. We ought to be. It's our job to abide. But 
the very power to be able to abide in the vine is granted by the vine itself. We couldn't abide in Christ if it were not for the sustaining nourishment that we get from him and for the pruning that we receive from God the Father. Therefore, we have to understand um, the fruit that we produce as a result of abiding in the vine is not a result of us hanging on to the vine hard enough. Okay? It's a result of the vine granting us life, granting us spiritual strength to produce fruit that he desires for us to produce. All right, let's move on to verse 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Okay, for me as, um, as a rhetoric teacher, like I just really have a lot of respect and admiration for how Jesus does this. Um, he's perfect. He lays out this analogy for his disciples. He introduces a metaphor, expands it, explains it, and then he relates it directly to them. This is what good speech looks like. This is what... This is how you preach. This is how you should do something. Anything with words. It's perfect. Um, So that's beautiful on its own. But for instance, one might have been tempted, like right after all this talk about branches and stuff. Well, Jesus, what happens to the branches that get removed? Jesus was just about to get to that. So just hang on. He says, they're gathered together and they're thrown into fire. Branches that are removed are destroyed. Now, this might be kind of hard a little bit, right? Um, why are they destroyed? Because they didn't produce fruit. Why, are, why didn't they produce fruit? Because they weren't abiding in the vine. This is serious. There are a lot of people that you come in contact with every day who claim to be Christians, who go to church, especially around here. But... So many of these Christians are not truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They don't produce real fruit because they're not abiding in the vine. They love their families. uh, They give to charity. They're kind, compassionate, active in their communities. But those are not products of true faith. Because they're not abiding in the vine. They don't have true faith. And they're going to be destroyed by fire. I mean, this is... This is hell that Jesus is talking about. And we have to understand the seriousness that the continual proclamation of the full gospel, understanding that when Jesus comes into us, it changes us, that we produce different fruit, that is essential even for people who sit in churches every Sunday morning. So examine yourself. Uh, Are you abiding in Christ? I mean, is he your root? your home, your sustainer. If you feel empty or malnourished, where do you go? Um, When the wind is blowing really hard, what do you hold on to? Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. (laughs) Now, okay, now I can get a little bit happier, right? This is a really cool promise, but we have to be really careful to understand it correctly. Um, We might be really prone as people, um, the humans that we are, to kind of overlook those first two clauses and jump right into that whole Jesus granting our wishes thing. Um, But notice, this is a conditional statement, okay? He will do whatever we wish if 
we abide in him, and if his words abide in us. Jesus is not a genie, okay? He's not in the business of conforming himself to our will. Rather, the point of this whole passage as a whole is that when we abide in the vine, we conform ourselves to him. Um, I don't know who first told me this or where I first understood it, but I'm really grateful um, because I'm thankful that I understand, uh, understand prayer this way. Um, when we pray, it's not our job to change God's mind. The way to get a prayer answered is not to just pray it a thousand times really, really hard every single day and hope that God eventually changes his will. No, that's not how we do it. The way to get a prayer answered is to pray the will of God. As we grow in sanctification, as we become more like him, we're going to notice that our prayers are answered more and more. But that's not because God looks at us and goes, wow, he's getting real holy. I think I'm going to start answering his prayers more often. No, it's because we've become more like him and we're praying for the things that he's going to do anyway. We're praying in the will of God because we're abiding in his words. He's going to grant what we ask for because what we ask for is what he wants. Our prayers will be effective if we abide in Christ. So do you find yourself praying selfishly? Do you ever uh, demand that God (laughs) does something for you, that he submit to you and your will? Um, Or are you seeing your prayers answered because you're conforming yourself to his will? Think about that. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, here's another awesome result of the fruit that we produce as branches. Um, the Father is glorified when we produce fruit. In the same way that, um, that a farmer or a gardener would receive honor and praise for producing a good crop, right? Um, the fruit of our good works in our lives brings glory to our Heavenly Father. And this glorification of the Father is, um, is a mark of being a true disciple, of being a true believer. But we have to remember again... Um, This fruit that we produce is only a product of the true vine giving us the power to do it. So when we bear much fruit, not only are we glorifying the Father, but the Son is glorifying the Father as well. This is the fullness of what we're meant to do. Now also consider what this means for the fruitless branches. Um, One of the key reasons that they're cut off is because they're not producing fruit. And by not producing fruit... They're robbing God of the glory that he's due. They're saying, nah, that's not really that important. Producing fruit, I'd rather do these things which bring me happiness, self-satisfaction, glory to me, right? They'd rather have that than glorify the Father with their fruit. So we ask, well, what about that you know, famous atheist guy? He gives all his money to help the homeless. Um, he's feeding hungry. He's curing diseases across the planet, Isn't he being fruitful? No. Not this way. He may be doing some common grace stuff and making the world a little bit happier place, but his good works are not directed at glorifying God. They're not truly good fruit. And according to Scripture, they're sin. It's like that fake fruit that people put in bowls on their tables, you know, and it looks real pretty, but when you taste it, It's disgusting because it's not genuine fruit. Verse 9. As the Father's loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. 
you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Okay, now we're starting to see Jesus expound even more on this theme. And he kind of shifts away from the vine metaphor a little bit and gets a little bit more directly talking to his disciples. Um, We've already seen Jesus talk about his relationship with the Father as kind of a a parallel or an analogy for his relationship with us. Um, You could think of it as... He calls us to abide in his love as he abides in the Father's love. Okay? How does he do that? In obedience. That's what he does. So just as he demonstrates that he abides in the love of the Father by keeping the commandments, so we can demonstrate that we abide in the love of Jesus by keeping his commandments. So the next question you obviously would ask is, well, if we break a commandment, do we stop abiding in his love? Again, I think it's really important that we consider the whole voice of this, voice of all of Scripture together, Our love of Jesus is the source of our obedience to him. His love for us is not not conditional on our obedience to him. It's conditional on our love, right? We love him. He loves us. That's how it works. But he loves us first. So that love first gives us the love back, and that causes obedience. It's a chain that, that you can't break. You can't just have one piece. You can't remove any piece of it. Our love of Jesus is the source of our obedience. But unlike Jesus' love for the Father, our love is imperfect. And therefore, our obedience will necessarily be imperfect. Um, D.A. Carson has a really good admonition here. Uh, He says, These verses do not impose on the believer an absolute alternative, perfect obedience or utter apostasy. Rather, they set up the only ultimate standard, the standard of Jesus himself. So I ask you, Do you love Jesus like Jesus loves the Father? That's a tough question. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here's another awesome result of abiding in the vine. We have fullness of joy. Now, this is really interesting. Jesus says this joy thing right after he tells them to be obedient. Obedience is not something we think of as joyful, right? Imagine when you tell your kids to do something. Do they obey with great joy in their hearts? No, they don't, right? Obedience is not fun. We don't like doing something that we're told to do. But Jesus is telling us that true obedience to the commands of God, truly abiding in the love of Christ, is the greatest source of perfect joy. And he's going to kind of explain why in just a second. Because glorifying God is fulfilling what we were meant to do. And that brings us great joy. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so now we see that Jesus is explaining what commands he's talking about. He says, you keep my commandments, right? What are the commandments? Well, here it is. Love one another as I have loved you. And this is a really incredible picture of this chain of love. God perfectly loves Jesus. Jesus perfectly loves us. And he calls us to perfectly love one another. And we recognize, too, that the the point here is not that loving each other somehow replaces or exempts us from loving Jesus, okay? Rather, genuine love for Jesus produces genuine obedience to his commands and, thus, genuine love for each other. And this is a result of us abiding in the vine. So do you find joy 
in obeying Jesus? Do you find joy in loving each other? Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Okay, there are two aspects that we have to think through here. First, um, this is kind of a practical part. Being willing to sacrifice our own desires, our plans, our hopes, uh, even our lives for our friends is a great demonstration of love. And Jesus is calling us to a self-sacrificing love for one another. Yes. But at the same time, and at a deeper level, Jesus is pointing to something that's about to happen, right? He's literally about to lay down his life for his friends, including us. And there's never been a greater love demonstrated than when Jesus died for the sins of his friends. And this is heavy because Jesus is calling us to that type of sacrificial love. Verse 14. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is part of that joy. Being friends is joyful. (laughs) Jesus explains who his friends are. His friends are those who do his commands. Um, We recognize that, okay, obedience is not what makes us friends. It's what characterizes us as friends. Okay? It's a byproduct of being friends. We also see that Jesus uh, is calling them friends, but this friendship is not an equal relationship. Um, We don't call Jesus our friend in the same way he calls us friend, because that would demean his holiness. Um, Just consider the distinction that Jesus makes here for us. He says, um, you're no longer servants, but friends. A servant is meant to just obey whatever his superior tells him to do. Without asking questions, without understanding why he's doing it, he just does what he's told. But Jesus has revealed to his disciples the purpose in their continued obedience. It's not just a checking off something on the list that you were told to do. Consider this. If you were told to do something or asked to do something by someone, would you be more likely to do it if they explained why you were doing it, its benefits, the ultimate result that they were aiming for, or would you rather them just tell you what to do without understanding anything about it, right? You have no clue of its purpose. Jesus is saying, you're my friends because I've told you why I want you to do this. This isn't some just servile command where you go and, and do what you're told and just hope that the master's happy at the end. It's a closer relationship than that. Also, a servant is performing like difficult and arduous and hard tasks, but Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We as his friends have these advantages of not being slaves anymore. We're set free. Also consider, okay, Jesus is giving them a new commandment, right? Um, Compare that to the huge list of cumbersome laws that the Jews had created for themselves, right? Now, there was a lot of law that God had given to them that they had added and expanded, and they were slaves to the law. Jesus declares that we're no longer slaves to the letter of the law. We are set free to love one another as friends and to cheerfully obey our Lord. So a true disciple, yes, a true disciple, bringing this back, a true disciple will still do what Jesus tells them to do, but it's not because they're ignorant slaves who are just 
keeping from being beat. It's because they're compelled to obey because they are understanding friends who love their Lord and desire to please him. That's what our obedience is is coming out of. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, in case the disciples started getting a little bit kind of proud, puffed up with their new friend status, they're like, yeah, gee, we're friends, Jesus. Uh, Jesus quickly points out that it's not because of anything that they've done, okay, that they received this honor. That's, it's not because of them. He chose them and appointed them for a purpose so that they produce fruit to glorify him. This friendship is for his glory, not for their self-esteem. Yes, they are empowered by the friendship, um, but it is for the purpose of greater fruit production, not for greater self-promotion, okay? And we too have been chosen by Christ. We are called his friends. And this is an incredible blessing and honor for us that we get to cheerfully obey and honor him. As friends, rather than kneel before him in supplication as servants, begging him not to destroy us for our failure to complete the task. So how do you think of your relationship with Jesus? Um, Do you feel like his friend or like a slave? Um, Do you daily check off things on your list, the master's to-do list? um, Or do you joyfully and lovingly and sacrificially submit yourself in obedience because you love your Lord? Now, another important aspect of this fruit that he brings up here is that the fruit will abide. Um, a lot of abiding happening here, right? But this idea here is that it will last. Now, if fruit is produced from an eternal vine, then that fruit is going to be eternal, right? So if the fruit really comes from the Holy Spirit, if it really comes from Christ, it will be lasting. But there's even another aspect involved here as well. The fruit, part of the fruit that's in view here is that of new converts. By faithfully preaching the word and the story of Jesus, the gospel, (laughs) fruit will abide because new branches are going to be producing it. Overflowing with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that's not an end to itself. Abundant fruit is a great thing, but... There are means to the conversion of others who will also be fruitful and therefore glorify the Father too. That's part of what our fruit is supposed to do is make others go, hey, I want to produce fruit like that. So do you produce fruit that points others to Christ? Recognize that this friend's friendship that we have here. This isn't like an exclusive little club where we just meet together and hang out and talk about how we're friends of Jesus. We're charged with making lots more friends and expanding this friendship circle to the entire world. And we also see that Jesus again is encouraging his disciples that the Father's going to answer their prayers if they abide in his love. And so we remember, it's not that God is at our beck and call ready to just grant whatever frivolous little request we might have. But the condition of him granting our requests tells us what kind of requests we would make. We abide in him and in his love.
If we are abiding, the request we make will be consistent with his desires, and he'll grant our request. All right, finally, verse 17, kind of closing this out. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the whole point. Why is Jesus telling him all this stuff he's just said? Why is he using this vine metaphor? Why is he talking about abiding in love and producing fruit? Why? So that you'll love one another. This is like the, that big, huge piece of fruit. You got a vine that's like, oh yeah, some good fruit. But there's that one that's just perfect and it's just ripe, ripe enough. It's so juicy and you're hesitant to even eat it because it's so perfect. Loving one another is that fruit. It's the fruit that is the beautiful, blue-ribbon-winning fruit at the state fair, okay? Our love for one another ought to be an extension of Jesus' love for us and our love for him. It should naturally outflow from that. He is commanding us here. He's telling us, abide in me. Abide in my love. I'm abiding in you. Why? So that you'll even be capable of loving one another. You couldn't if it wasn't for you abiding in the vine. You couldn't if it wasn't for the fact that he loved you first. We can't love each other this way unless he loves us this way first. Um, Hendrickson says this, Not only do we love him because he first loved us, but we also love one another only because he first loved us. Our true, selfless, and unconditional love is only possible because of Christ's initial, perfect, selfless, unconditional love for us. Do you love that way? All right, so let's kind of step back and think through this as a whole. Jesus is the vine. He's the true Israel. He is the realization of this Old Testament type. God the Father, he's a vine dresser. He comes in and prunes. We're the branches of the vine. It's our duty and our job and our calling to produce good fruit, but we can't produce fruit on our own. First, we have to abide in the vine. And that vine is going to give us life and strength. He sustains us. He enables us to produce the good fruit that we're called to produce. Second, the vine dresser comes along and sometimes painfully prunes us so that we can increase our fruit production. And the vine dresser at the same time is removing branches from the vine which are not fruitful, gathering them up and burning them, destroying them. Now, when we abide in the vine, there are several things that happen. First, our prayers will be effectual, not because God finally started listening to us, but because we finally started doing and praying for what he wants. We'll keep his commandments. It's a natural, obedience is a natural outpouring of true love. We will grow in joy, great joy, because we're his friends. We'll make disciples. True fruit will necessarily produce more branches, which produce more fruit. And we will grow in our love of God, the triune God, all three persons, um, and in our love for one another. That's a necessary outworking of abiding in the vine. And finally, most important piece here, when we abide in the vine, God is glorified. This is the fruit that you are called to produce. 
So how can you know if you're abiding? Ask yourself if you're a fruitful branch. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have grafted us into this perfect vine and that we as branches have this awesome opportunity to produce fruit which glorifies you. Father, forgive us for our failure so often to be fruitful branches. Forgive us for taking advantage of the resources that you give to us through the power of Christ, wasting it on foolish things, making fruit that is for our own glory and not for yours. I pray this morning that the words that I've said have been words from you. Pray that those here have a greater and stronger understanding of what Jesus desires and requires of us as believers. That we abide in him, him and us. That we love one another and glorify you. We pray all this in his awesome name. Amen.